This morning's reading is taken from uh, Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 50, and reading through to chapter 24, verse 35, starting at Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to the decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it, took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter ran and Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marvelling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body... They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those that were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened us to the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Gregor. And please do keep that passage open in front of you. And I'm going to pray for God's help as we turn to his word. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus and to understand your scriptures. And please help me in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, nearly 2,000 years ago, a carpenter's son from Nazareth, who had died and been buried, rose from the dead. He wasn't an unknown figure. He was known locally and nationally. He makes it into both Jewish and Roman histories, albeit briefly. He was tried and crucified as a criminal by the Roman Empire, and they were good at killing people. He was really dead. Then two days later, he rose from the dead and left a tomb that was a a known location locally. He left that tomb empty, but for the grave clothes. Can you believe that? Is it possible to have certainty that Jesus rose from the dead? That's the question Luke has for us today. Is Is it possible to be more sure of this fact than other things we take for granted in history, like there was a a First World War, there was a Caesar Augustus, there was a day when a man rose from the dead. Is it possible to be certain? Sadly, at the moment in our country, lots of people don't even get to think about that, haven't even heard the claim and the evidence as an adult. And next week, we're going to think about that. Next week, we'll talk about getting that message outwards. But today, the question is, if you are invited to consider it, can it possibly be true? Can you be sure it's true? I think many, if invited to consider that for the first time, would think, well, surely not. I mean, come on. Come on. This must be some kind of fairy tale. It must be fanciful. Just some kind of nice religious story to inspire hope that maybe there'll be a happy ending one day. Surely it's not actual, factual reality If you're listening in and feeling like that, it may surprise you to find that the first followers of Jesus felt exactly that when they heard the story. Did you notice that in verse 11? Chapter 24, verse 11, page 885, if you're in the church Bibles. Verse 11, when these first witnesses, the women, pass on to the other followers of Jesus what they've seen, verse 11, these words seem to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Striking that, isn't it? You're not seriously expecting us to believe that, are you? Sometimes um, in our age, we look on people of the past with a chronological snobbery. 
our progressive age sometimes looks back and, and discriminates against thinkers of the past as if they were gullible and superstitious, just ready to believe anything. Actually, they weren't. Even this group who had multiple witnesses come to them, these women in verse 10, who they knew well and knew could be trusted, even they struggled to be convinced that someone had actually risen from the dead. Actually, everyone in this chapter initially struggles to be convinced. And so the women themselves, when they go to the tomb at the start of the chapter, uh, they're carrying spices, expensive spices and ointments, because they're sure Jesus is dead. And when they find the empty tomb, verse 2 and verse 3, they don't know what to think, verse 4. They're perplexed. They don't think to themselves, ah, I know what's happened, resurrection. They don't know what to make of it. That's the women, uh, the disciples that they tell, and actually even the two characters on this road to Emmaus and from verse 13 onwards, they also don't know what to make of it. They've been told uh, all that the women have seen, but just look at verse 21 as they recount what they know about Jesus. Verse 21, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped but they're still looking sad. Even after they've heard the report from the women, verse 24, and, and checked it out, it was just as the women said, still they're not sure. Him they did not see, so we're not sure this can be real. Striking. Everyone in the passage struggles to accept initially that this really is a resurrection from the dead. It really matters whether we have confidence in Jesus rising from the dead. It's a massive moment. It is, in lots of ways, the central moment in human history. I said that last week about the cross, didn't I? But they're kind of a pair. The cross and resurrection of Jesus are the central moment in human history. If this actually happened in space-time, in this universe, it changes everything. As you read on into the sequel to to Luke, Acts, Acts, Um, you'll see that the the resurrection of Jesus is the message that that his disciples keep announcing to the nations. It confronts everybody. Because if Jesus is actually alive, well, then everything else he said is, is verified, proved, including the claim that he will come back and judge the world, the living and the dead. He will hold everyone accountable and that the offer that forgiveness is available in his name and only his name, the narrow door to the kingdom, as he called it. Conversely, if the resurrection isn't real, well, then it really is all a waste of time. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then we Christians are most to be pitied out of humanity. Lots of people have a hobby, don't they? They have something they do with their their time outside of eating and sleeping and working. But this is a costly thing. This takes all of our life following serving Jesus. And if it's not true, we're wasting our lives. Living a lie should be pitied. Everything hangs on this. It means if you're not a Christian listening in, you wouldn't describe yourself like that. It's a great passage to pay really careful attention Um, Likewise, for those of us who are Christians, sometimes we do have wobbles in the Christian life. Sometimes we find our minds flooded with doubts or questions. Is this really true? Or is it really worth it? 
That can happen when we come across something in the Bible that we find hard to accept. It can happen when, we, when there's something in life that is costly, that going Jesus' way would actually be painful on a moral or ethical issue, perhaps. Sometimes it comes from the stick we get for being Christians or for just exhaustion, trying to serve him and getting weary. Sometimes it comes from tragedy and grief in our lives, shock. I debated whether to tell you this, but I will. Um, yesterday, I heard from a very dear friend in ministry that they've just, um, they've just suffered the, the tragic loss of their daughter, their eight-year-old daughter. I'm still in shock. I think they are too. I mean, how's he going to keep going as a Christian, as a church leader? Well, if the resurrection is real, he will. As he said to me, the hand that said to a little girl, rise, is the king they will all see again. The resurrection is a reality in his mind, and it's going to keep him going. And it can keep us going through grief, through battles, through costly decisions to follow Jesus, through the cost of spreading this amazing message of forgiveness around the world. It's worth it if he's not dead and buried. And so Luke writes, Luke 24, compiles all this evidence to make us absolutely sure this really happened. What struck me going through it this time is, is there are two quite different types of evidence in this chapter. Two kind of lines of persuasion. The first line is, is kind of eyewitness testimony. It's kind of facts on the ground, the stuff they actually saw and heard and touched. We're going to start with that. That's our first point. If you want an outline to see how long is left, uh, it's on the back of the service sheet. And the first point is all about the kind of facts on the ground, eyewitness evidence. But there's another thread, which is, which is about fulfillment. It's about promises, previous promises, which are being fulfilled in these events. Promises from Jesus, that'll be point two, and promises from the Old Testament, that'll be point three. It's what the angels say, said at the tomb to those women. Do you not remember? He told you. It's what Jesus is going to say on the road to Emmaus. Do you not believe the Old Testament? God told you. That's the plan of attack. The facts first, that what they saw on the ground, and then the fulfillment, the previous words from God that should tell us to expect this. And wonderfully, in his kindness, God has given us both of those threads to help us trust this really actually happened. So let's get into the passage then. Um, point one, the facts witnessed on the ground. So verse one of our chapter. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, these women went to the tomb taking spices they prepared. And notice they find one thing and they don't find another. And both are surprising. Verse two, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They're shocked by both. Huh, the stone, that massive stone that seals the tomb, it, it's moved and gone, rolled away, and then the body is gone. And like I said earlier, in verse 3, they're, they're not like, oh, yeah, of course, resurrection, we were expecting that. They don't know what to think. They're perplexed. It says the first bit of eyewitness data. We saw an empty tomb. 
It was definitely the same tomb because they, at the end of chapter 23, had watched the body being put in there. They knew that a body was in there when the stone sealed it two days before and now it's somehow definitely open and definitely empty. At which point the the most likely naturalistic explanation might be grave robbers. I mean, it would have to be plural, I think a gang, because the stone was pretty hefty. To shift that took a a lot. Um, Except later on in verse 12, we discover that when Peter comes to check out the scene for himself, he notices something else about the tomb. It's not actually an empty tomb. That's a misdescription because there are grave clothes left, the linen cloths that were wrapped around the body, left in the tomb. And no self-respecting thieves would do that. I mean, that's where the value lay in stealing a body. And actually, even if you weren't a thief, but a vandal or a disciple or an enemy, someone trying to get the body out of there, well, you're not going to bother to unwrap a body before stealing it. So you go, two bits of eyewitnesses now. We've got a tomb empty of everything except the cloths, the linen cloths that originally wrapped the body and this wide open door. But actually, it's not just the physical material stuff that they saw. Um, No sooner are the women trying to work out what on earth could have happened, but there are these two dazzling individuals who start talking to them in verse 4. It's interesting, by the time it's reported down in verse 23, they've all worked out this must be angels But right now, I think you just get a a kind of straight commentary uh, of what they saw. Um, Two men, dazzling clothing, terrifying. They bow down, verse 5, and then this explanation comes. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. The tomb's empty of its dead body because the body is no longer dead. Jesus took off those linen clothes and put them down walked out of the grave, smashed death to pieces like he said he would. There's one more bit of eyewitness evidence to consider in in our passage, which is the appearances of the risen Jesus himself. That's why it actually takes up most of Luke 24, from verse 13 onwards, um, where Jesus draws alongside these two men walking, Cleopas and his mate, on the road to Emmaus. (coughs) Although they do take a while to realize who he is, Next week, we'll see from verse 36 onwards, Jesus appears to all the disciples, the the, the 11 who are left, um, and shows uh, his hands and his feet, even eats one of their, um, part of their fish supper to prove it's not just a dream or a hallucination or a ghost. Actually, even the road to Emmaus and the the appearance of the 12 isn't all the appearances that are mentioned here. Um, This really struck me. Let me just read verses 30 to 35. It's the moment where they realize Jesus is next to them. Verse 30, when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them, and their eyes were open. They recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You want to to tell people, it's true. What the women said, it's true. But listen to this. When they got there, verse 34, they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Do you see what's happening? They, get, they, get, they rush back to, to Team HQ to say, look, we've seen him. It is actually real. But they can't even get the message out because Team HQ is saying, we've seen him. Or at least Peter has. It's real. 
That makes sense? Multiple appearances. I didn't actually know about this one, and we're not told any more detail about it anywhere else, but Jesus also appeared to Peter. And the, the rest of the New Testament tells us of many other appearances as well. The point is there are multiple facts witnessed on the ground. An empty tomb, linen cloths left in the tomb, angelic beings seen by the women, multiple appearances of people actually seeing Jesus. There is simply no other theory that can explain all of that. Grave robbers wouldn't leave the linen and can't explain the angels and the sighting. Hallucination doesn't explain the physical items. The stone moved, the tomb was empty, the fish were eaten. And also it doesn't happen to different people in different places like this. The swoon theory that Jesus wasn't dead, he just ended up kind of, he fainted on the cross and then ended up in the tomb and the cool of the tomb kind of helped him come back to life. That doesn't fit anything we know of Pilate. There's no way the Roman governor, having faced a near riot saying crucify him, would release a body he wasn't sure was dead. And actually the body was handled by multiple people, wrapped in a tomb. You might have noticed if it was just fainting. Nor can it be the wrong tomb. I said the women know where he was buried. Nor can it be mistaken identity with whoever it is who's going around meeting the disciples and pretending to Jesus. Because next week we'll show him showing his hands and feet. It's definitely him. There really is no other way to explain what they saw that day. At which point a skeptic may well say, well, okay, yeah, okay. If there was an empty tomb and angels and appearances from Jesus, well then logically, yeah, okay, fine. There's no way out, no other explanation. But are we really just going to take their word for it? I mean, what if they're making it up? What if it's a cleverly crafted hoax? What if Luke's doing some creative writing? After all, we're just really listening to him tell us about all these other people. Maybe he's throwing in some some juicy details to make Christianity more persuasive and exciting. Well, the problem with assuming Luke is making it up is he tells us who his sources are. Precisely. Did you notice that? He keeps telling us who witnessed which bits of the story. And not just kind of vague names, there was once a woman who saw, or there was once a guy who had a tomb, but very specifically. So back in 23 verse 50, who was it who handled the body? Well, Joseph. Which Joseph? I mean, that's a pretty common name in the first century Israel. Well, Joseph of Arimathea. You know, the one who was a member of the Jewish religious council. You can find him if you want and ask him. Who were the witnesses on site at the empty tomb initially? Well, a group of women, which in first century culture would not have been the most persuasive way to fabricate a story. Um, in courts of law, often two male witnesses were required in that culture. But the truth is, that's what happened, and so that's what Luke is recording for us. And again, it's not just a vague kind of bunch of women, it's specific named individuals. We're told about Mary in verse 10. There's two Marys, actually. It's a common name again. So with the common names, you get more specificity. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women. That is, you can go and ask them. If you're a generation later, as Mary has died, you can go and ask her son, James. Luke wants us to be sure. It's so far from once upon a time, in a land far away, a a wonderful thing happened. 
It's the same with the Emmaus Road. Ask Cleopas. Ask Peter. Ask any of the 11 left. At which point, suggesting that a kind of conspiracy and deceit to make this up and, and coordinate this hoax, I mean, it would take a huge effort, especially from this fearful ragtag bunks of disciples. They've got nothing to gain from making this up. They suffer for this message. Lots of them die for this message. Sometimes people do sacrifice themselves for lies, especially powerful religious ones. We see that in our world, don't we? Suicide bombers. But these were original witnesses, not brainwashed devotees. They actually knew themselves what they had seen or not seen. No way they would have risked their lives for a lie. So, there's the facts on the ground. Multiple reliable sources witnessing multiple different facts with no particular expectation of resurrection. They weren't expecting Jesus to be anything but dead at this point. And Luke says that is plenty to have confidence that Jesus really rose. That is enough for my grieving friends to cling to. If you're wobbling with doubts as a Christian at the moment, Jesus' resurrection is a great place to go. Have a good long look. I remember a a time, a number of years ago, I was speaking to an older Christian about the fact I was struggling with doubts. Um, It was embarrassing uh, because I was leading ministries at the time, but I was battling privately, serving away, teaching others privately, kind of shriveling up with worry and doubt. Is Is it really, really true? He said to me three brilliant things. One, I'll pray for you, and we'll see at the end why that matters. Two, do you have an alternative worldview that better explains our world? Great question, I didn't. Three, have you spent much time thinking about the empty tomb recently? Something happened that day, and there's no other credible explanation. Why not take a good look at it again? I found that hugely helpful personally. The events around Jesus' death and resurrection are far better attested than many historical events of the ancient world that we take for granted as reliable. But amazingly, that's only one part of the reasons to be certain. That's only one thread of evidence in Luke 24. And the more I have spent time in Luke, the more I'm convinced that the other thread is the bigger one the one that can give us even more confidence. Not what the witnesses said after they'd seen the events, but what God said before these events happened, what God's word predicted. Um, Which again is something you can't fake, isn't it? Like if it was an elaborate hoax, it would be hard to, to kind of go back 700 years and get Isaiah to write something down for you. God in his kindness gave us plenty of warning that Jesus would rise from the dead, that the Messiah King would suffer, die, and rise. So here's point two. Um, Just take a a breather and a a mental break for a moment. Have a shuffle if you'd like to. Um, And point two is relatively brief, compared to point one at least. Here's point two. We should be certain that Jesus rose because of the fulfillment of Jesus' words. This is what the angels point out, isn't it? In chapter 24, verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. 
and they remembered his words. Now, these words should be familiar words. Um, We've heard them a number of times now as we've worked our way through Luke's gospel in our motto series. Um, In chapter 9, back in September, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem and started announcing what was going to happen there. Um, In fact, I think it's time to come clean and confess. I think we got the branding of the series slightly wrong. It's my fault. Um, Our slogan was, The Cross Bound Christ. That's a great slogan. Um, It alliterates, and it's short, and and it, it kind of captures much of what he said, that I'm heading to the cross. It was the big surprise of Luke that Jesus has to suffer and die and be rejected on the cross. Let me read his predictions at the start and the end of the journey and see if there's something missing as I read them. This is Luke 9. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Prediction 2, Luke 18. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon, and after flogging him, they'll kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So what's missing in the catchphrase, the cross-bound Christ? Well, the final phrase, on the third day he will rise. Really, it should have been the the cross and resurrection-bound Christ. It's a bit more of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, But it's more accurate. The plan was always to smash death to pieces, to go to the cross in our place, to bear our sins on his shoulders, and then to break the grave, to take the curse of death as this new Adam, this obedient person, to take the curse of death for any who trust in him. Jesus was also the resurrection-bound Christ. The disciples didn't get it at the time. They're still struggling to get it in Luke 24. And so the angels said, don't you remember? It is what he said. That's point two, the fulfillment of Jesus' words. And then finally, point three, the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. This is a really big deal. We even heard it in those bits I read from earlier in Luke where Jesus says, everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. The more I spend reflecting on Luke, the more amazing, the the more wonderful this this God-given strengthener in our trust of the resurrection should be. God had been saying over hundreds of centuries, multiple prophets and places in the Old Testament, This is the plan. Suffering, death, resurrection. And one more thing, which we'll see next week. Again, we've already seen Jesus teaching this. Um, It's not a new idea. Uh, For those who are here, do you remember when he was in the temple and he was interacting with his enemies? Um, They were already planning to kill him. And there was this amazing conversation where he said, basically, I know you're planning to kill me, is the parable of the tenants. I know you're planning to kill the son. And I know you're going to succeed in killing the son. And then he pointed out, that won't be the last you see of me. He used Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, he taught from the Old Testament. You can't reject God's king and even kill God's king and get away with it. 
that king will become the cornerstone, the centerpiece of what God's doing. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Before we look at any more Old Testament, let's just look at Jesus pointing this out to the guys on the road to Emmaus. Um, so uh, we'll pick it up from verse 22 in Luke 24. Verse 22, uh, this is the report of what we've seen in point one. Uh, some women of our company amazed us. They say they were at the tomb early in the morning. They didn't find the body. They came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. I mean, they're just going through the, the bits of evidence, aren't they? But verse 24, some who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Striking these two guys and still not sure. Still not sure. And then Jesus says, well, what does Jesus say? He could have said, hello, here I am. Like, can you not see me? He could have said, look at the evidence in front of your eyes. But he doesn't. Not first. First, he says, verse 25, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things, enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Do you see what he's saying? Come on, guys, this is, this is all over the Old Testament. The first two-thirds of the Bible, that is, were preparing the way for Jesus' life, death, and life again story. Are you really telling me, like, with all of that data, you can't trust that a resurrection has happened of God's Messiah? And so he begins, verse 27, the most amazing small group Bible study ever. <laughs> I mean, I wish I'd been there. Their hearts, they say afterwards, are burning as he walks them through a Bible overview pointing to him and his death and resurrection. Do you know, I used to say, uh, with this bit, I used to, think, oh, if, if only we'd been there, we could, have, we could have heard which passages Jesus turned to and then thought about them ourselves. But now I realize Luke has been telling us the passages Jesus turns to over the last few chapters. I already mentioned Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. Likewise, we've recently had Psalms 22 and 69 on the cross, and the and, and they begin with the God's king suffering and, and crying like he's been abandoned, but they end with him being vindicated and raised up. Or Psalm 110, we heard Jesus referring to, where a descendant of David, a human king, becomes an eternal priest. Hard to be eternal if you haven't risen from the dead. We'll think about that more in Hebrews next year. Or most clear and compelling, and this is the, the, the last kind of big thing we'll think about, we've been hearing that Isaiah 53 is the way to understand Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus quoted it when he said, I'll be numbered with the transgressors. We've seen every detail of it matching what happens, the unfair trial, the beatings, the being killed as a criminal despite being innocent, even being buried like a rich man the private tomb. Every detail matches. But so far, we keep pausing Isaiah 53 before we get to the end. See, amazingly, it doesn't just predict the sufferings and the death of God's servant. It predicts life for him after death. Let me just read some verses. You don't need to turn there. This is Isaiah 53, verse 8. 
speaking of this servant, this righteous servant of God, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living? They made his grave with the wicked. I mean, that's fairly clear he's dead, isn't it? Out of the land of the living, buried, dead and buried. But then, this is halfway through verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord in his, which shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. He even says later, he'll be praying for the transgressors. I mean, how do you make sense of that? The guy's dead and buried. And then he's seeing his family, his, his children, his, his servants, his disciples. He's praying for them. It's extraordinary. I'm sure that's one of the passages that he was talking about on the road. Do you not see? The Old Testament promised this would happen. Our time is nearly up. The eyewitness evidence, the facts on the ground, are compelling for the resurrection of Jesus. From what they actually saw and heard, there's no other good explanation of what's going on. But in God's kindness, he also prepared the way. He prepared the way with Jesus as he spoke of his forthcoming resurrection, and he prepared the way across the whole of the Old Testament. The plan was always to have his king die in our place, rise from the dead, and give us solid, eternal hope. It's, it's why if you are someone who's not yet a Christian, if, if for you Easter's just been a good opportunity for a bank holiday and novelty shapes of chocolate, let me say this is the most important fact in human history. Jesus will judge this world because he is alive and will come back. Jesus can offer us forgiveness in his name because he is alive. Jesus can give hope to the grieving. Because he is alive. Death is not the end. As we close... One final thought. If it's so obvious, both in the Bible, like it's there to be read, and in, in history with all this evidence, if it's so obvious, why don't more people believe? I wonder if that question ever occurs to us. Well, I think because it does still take a miracle. It takes God opening our eyes to see it. Striking, isn't it, that, that these men were walking on the road with Jesus right next to them and they didn't notice <laughs> Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And actually, we've seen that all the way through Luke. You can look up those verses in Luke 10 later. Um, uh, it, it takes God opening our eyes to see the truth about Jesus. We're so wired to push God's king away, to not take a good look at him. It takes a miracle to see. His enemies saw miracles in front of their eyes, and they didn't turn and trust him. It takes a miracle to see. But wonderfully, in verse 31... 
these two individuals experienced that miracle. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's why it was such good advice when that older friend of mine said, I'll pray for you, as well as go and look at the evidence. I remember the first time I realized I can't quite trust my eyes. I was at school, they had a poster, you know, optical illusions with the the staircases that go at kind of 45 degree angles and they they join up. Some look like they're going up and then they join one that's lower. And I remember staring at it thinking, what is going on there? And since then I've realized it's loads of things, like blind spots in mirrors. You can't quite trust your eyes. Or I heard recently that um, journeys, they feel longer on the way out than they do on the way back because our brains perceive time differently depending on whether it's new experiences or old experiences. It's unnerving. You're like, oh, hang on. I can't, I can't actually be reliable always at discerning what's there, at seeing properly. And the Bible says it's not just optical illusions. It's spiritual eyesight where we have a natural problem. We need Jesus to open our eyes to this truth. We need this miracle. And we can pray that as Christians as well. Lord, open the eyes of my hearts our heart to see you more clearly, to trust your resurrection more fully. And so, when we're feeling wobbly, battling doubts, struggling to count the cost, trying to grieve as those who have hope, Lord Jesus can open our eyes to trust what's been said and what they saw. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, so many promises hang on this event. The promise that Jesus is coming back to judge. The promise that the cross really works to forgive anyone's sin if they trust in Jesus. The promise that one day you will wipe every tear from our eyes. And so we thank you for how solid the eyewitness testimony and the long promises of Scripture are around this event. And we pray very much you would open the eyes of our hearts to those new to Christian things and to those who've been serving you for years. Please give us a fresh confidence in the reality of the coming resurrection because of the empty tomb. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.